Good morning, guys. Hey, it's really always good to be together in the Lord. I don't want to take this. I don't want to take this for granted. Uh, we are continuing in our series, First Peter, uh, called "Living Hope." We will be in chapter four, and specifically today, we are going to look at the concept of hope in the face of judgment, which I think will be more exciting than it sounds. Uh, I also want to say we focused on some of the more difficult uh, elements, themes of First Peter, but dessert is coming in the next series when we'll be in the book of Jude. So just know you have Jude to look forward to in March after First Peter, so enjoy this. But uh, I want to get us all thinking in the right direction by talking about dancers. Apparently, this is true, apparently there's a lot of judgment in the world of serious ballet. My wife and I had uh, two uh, friends as adults who stuck with ballet well into their 20s or even early 30s. And in both cases, the pressures, the expectation, the judgment inherent in that world was harmful to them. Like from what they told us, you have to be perfect. You have to look exactly the right way. You have to move exactly the right way. And for one of them, all this effort toward perfection in ballet led to long-term physical health problems, and the other battled eating disorders for years. So the judgment that they faced was oppressive, and it was painful for a long time. Now let me contrast that with the mostly untrained dancers that live in my own home. My youngest daughter, Dewey, is taking tap dance, and she's doing awesome, but she's still early in her amateur dance career. Then there's Joy, who dances all the time, and I've shared with you before Joy's background. She literally couldn't walk till she was four. She could barely sit up on her own. She's had so many physical special needs struggles. She is also not a professional dancer. However... We are about to watch a video of Dewey and Joy dancing, and we are going to render judgment on this dancing. There, I don't believe there will even be audio, which will let the dance moves stand more on their own. <laughs> Soak it in. Soak it in. It may just repeat for forever. I don't know exactly, but you get the idea. So now we've seen the dancing. Take, take the cute distraction away. Too adorable. <laughs> and now, I will judge the dance routine we just witnessed on a scale of 1 to 10. <laughs> a 10? A 10? A novice tap dancer and a special needs ballet dancer just scored a perfect this is crazy. It's unprecedented. How could this, how? How could this happen? Well, it's because of who's judging, right? They didn't get a perfect 10 because of perfect dancing. They got a perfect 10 because of a loving judge. The judge is their dad. Like, the judge literally watches them twirl all the time with a smile on his face. The judge loves those dancers. The judge is for those dancers in every way imaginable. So consider the perfect 10 scores that happen in my house in comparison to the withering judgment 
of professional ballet. Because that is the glorious situation in contrast that we find ourselves in as Christians. If we have a relationship, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, we are all, in a very real sense, special needs ballet dancers. We have bodies that fail us. We have abilities that don't measure up. We're broken. We couldn't walk on our own. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we're dancing and we're even falling all the time. But the judge is our father and he's already given us our score. So the question we get to ask ourselves today is which judge are we going to focus on? Because we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 4, and in it we're going to see that those in the world without Jesus judge Christians. And that's because they don't, they don't like our moves, so to speak. They don't agree with how we lived. We discussed a few weeks ago that sometimes they'll even hate us. In, 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 in chapter 2 we saw that. We can focus on their judgment, but it will crush us. We'll be scarred. We'll be hurt. But Jesus is also judging us. And we can choose to focus on his judgment. And Jesus is holding up tens every day, every day. So his judgment, when we choose to focus on it, is a choice. So we're going to read all of 1 Peter 4. It's a bit of a read. We're going to get through every word of this book together. So get comfortable, 1 Peter 4. Through that lens, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. We're not even halfway done yet, so just keep staying with me. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert, sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain Maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. I love that phrase so much. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's keep reading. Dear friends. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. These are all themes that we have caught earlier in the text. You are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. We have not seen that theme, but don't do it. 
Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone who suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for the judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faith faithful creator while doing what is good. This is the word of the Lord. So we just read the word judge three times. So a quick recap. Judgment was implied three other times. And we just read that the righteous person is, by the way, I'm, I like to give you a heads up and this is going to happen. This is going to be a lot teachery or more teachery than preachery, except for like the last couple of minutes today. So just kind of track along more, more teacher mode. So we just read that the righteous person is saved with difficulty. Some translations say are scarcely saved, right? And Peter's point is that the righteous are saved, but that it requires the sacrifice of God himself for the righteous to be saved. What then must that mean for the lost world? And then the last line said, trust yourself to a faithful creator while doing what is good. And this is the only, it's, it's interesting, this is the only place in the New Testament where that word for creator is used. We don't, the New Testament didn't talk about God as a creator, especially not in this way. One commentator that I read this week said, the combination of faithful and creator, faithful creator, reminds the believer of God's love and power in the midst of your trials so that they will, no doubt, so that they will not doubt his interest or ability. So put those two thoughts together. And for the believer... The judge, the judge, capital J, is the faithful creator who gave himself for the salvation of his children, the righteous. That's a long way of saying that should shift our perspective on the concept of judgment. Trust yourself to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So what we're going to do is walk back through this chapter And I want us to see three things that will help us know the joy of the judged. So first, let's see the behaviors of the judged, the behaviors. This is everybody's favorite always. We discussed a similar theme in chapter two, but we pick it up again here in chapter four. And essentially, again, there are two lists here. We have a set of behaviors that we are told not to do in verses three and four. And then there's a list of behaviors that we are supposed to do now. Of course, as always, the caveat comes, these lists are not exhaustive. Peter is sharing some things that we are not to do. For for instance, he says, don't carry on unrestrained or submit yourself to your evil desires. He says, no drunkenness or orgies or carousing, which just means drunken parties, etc. So, on the, very plainly, there are, there are behaviors that we are to avoid because they are a part of a destructive lifestyle of sin that we are to avoid. But then, then of course, there are also behaviors in this passage that we're to pursue. In verse 7, love one another, be hospitable, serve one another, speak the words of God, serve in the strength of God, on and on. And these are commands, as we'll see in a moment, that can actually cause us to receive judgment in this life. But I think it's really important least for me, but I think in this culture, to remind ourselves again why we live this way. Like, why do we live doing what the Bible says and not doing what the Bible says not to do? Why are we told to even have these behaviors? Well, the passage tells us in verse 11. 
The passage says, Peter says, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. And this may not sound all that exciting sometimes, but that only happens when our excitement about God diminishes. Because to be a Christian is to recognize our need and God's beauty, isn't it? We're broken. He is fulfilling. We are sinners. He is glory. To be a Christian is to know that we are weak and to cling to God's strength. Like, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Living how God wants us to live in this world glorifies the God we deeply want to glorify, right? But that's not all. This one we like better. If we broaden the context a little, remembering that 1 Peter is a book about hope, we can remember that God always speaks to us and leads us toward the expectation of good, right? Go back in your mind to the very beginning of the series, which was six or seven weeks ago now. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 2 said that God wants grace and peace to be multiplied to us, right? Verse 3 said he has great mercy and has given us a new birth into a living hope. Verse 5 said we are being guarded by God's power for, through faith for salvation, on and on. You know what that means? That means God loves you and that God's commands that he gives you are for your good. So the behaviors that he expects of us are behaviors that lead to life, grace, peace, protection, rejoicing. I told you guys as an example a few weeks ago that I have a rule about holding hands in parking lots. Remember that? Like it is a command in my house to hold a hand on the way to Kroger so you don't get crushed by a car. That's a good command. It's a good command. I also have a command about only being on computers in a room with an adult. It's a command in my house right now. We've told our kids that there are things on computers that are harmful for them. There are also things that are helpful, so I want you to have access to the computer, but in a way that will minimize the harm, right? It's a rule that's birthed out of love, not punishment, right? It's the same way with God. His commands are always for our good. 1 Peter 4 mentions drunkenness. That leads to destruction. We know this. It mentions lawless idolatry. That leads to emptiness. We have thousands of years of evidence that that's true. Our wrong desires leads to heartache. But on the flip side, the second list, how beautiful if we did the second list. Can you imagine living in a world where everyone loved one another? What would our world, our family, our church look like if we were consistently joyfully hospitable to one another? What if when we speak, we spoke the words of God? What if we served in the strength of God? This is just Peter's language. And these behaviors not only glorify God, but they also bring flourishing. That's amazing. But here we also begin to see the judgment. Because this is, this is biblically true. This is also sort of intuitively true. When we move from death to life, And our desires start to change from more of the first list to more of the second list. The world naturally begins to judge us. We stop being like them. And verse 4 says that they slander us. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter said that they call us strangers and exiles. They revile us. Now, 
I'll admit I don't often feel reviled in Middle Tennessee, but the concept is still true, played out all the way. We will be judged by the world when we reject behaviors of destruction and move toward the behaviors of joy. But did you notice that that passage teaches us that judgment isn't unique to the Christian? Everyone will be judged. There's two lists of behaviors in this passage, but there are also two judges. There's the world without Jesus judging Christians, and there's God himself judging everyone. That was the most boring point for today, and you made it through it. That gets us to point two, the authority of the judge. Let's read verses four and five again. They are surprised, these are the unbelievers, this is the the culture without Christ, that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. So the contrast here is very clear. The world judges Christians and God judges everybody. But notice that the gospel is preached to those who are now dead. So that's referring to Christians who are now with the Lord, who were saved through the gospel. So there's two judges, regular humans without Jesus or the judge of the living and the dead. Who should get our attention? This is the, I'm going to say this analogy. If you had to fight 1,000 toddlers or prime Mike Tyson, who would you choose? (laughs) I could handle 1,000 toddlers in a battle. No, I don't want to be their parent. The judge of the living and the dead can be a terrifying, ominous title, right? What a frightening phrase. I think it's intended to be. If you weren't already sure that you have now become the little ballet dancers of a loving father... The judge of the living and the dead would be a horrifying concept. But here's the thing. It is. Those in this world who have not trusted in Jesus, have not believed the gospel, who are judging believers, this is a truly terrifying concept. Those who judge us for not living according to natural desires will themselves be judged for living according to natural desires. Two judges, those without Christ judge believers, and the judge of the living and the dead judges everybody. So let's ask the question, why does God have the authority to judge the living and the dead? I think we can actually worship by considering authorized judgment. You might remember, you might not, no pressure, but six months ago, I shared with you some simple but famous philosophical arguments for the existence of God. It's about six months ago. I'm going to share two more 
along with passages that, uh, of Scripture that undergird these thoughts that will help us see that God absolutely has the authority and the power and the wisdom to judge the living and the dead. But first, uh, try to remember when we went to apologetic school a few months ago, okay? So we learned the, car- the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Anybody remember? You don't just, do you remember, even remember the phrase? Never mind, don't raise your hand, you'll crush me. <laughs> My wife always tells me nobody remembers anything, just assume they don't. The cosmological argument says that everything that had a beginning had a cause. The uni- I'm not going to reteach them again. If you just, you'll get the syllogism and we'll move on. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a capital C cause. If you don't remember the explanation of that, I will give it to you again after the service. Let me give you a chance to read it. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a capital C cause. You know another way of saying that? In the beginning was the capital W word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. Without him was not one thing created that has been created. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. And you'll remember, we talked maybe, that we talked about the teleological argument. All designs imply a designer. There is great design in the universe. Therefore, there is a great designer of the universe. Y'all's faces are telling me you don't remember this, so I will teach these again sometime. You know what that sounds a lot like? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and said that it was very good. So you you don't really remember those, but you get the concept. Let me build off that. Talk about the moral argument for the existence of God. We're facing judgment. That works like this. Moral law implies a moral lawgiver. There is an objective moral law Therefore, there is an objective moral lawgiver. Here's what this means. So I'll actually teach this one so you can track. If there is a moral law, if there is a natural moral standard, it had to have come from somewhere. It has to be based on... If there's a deep, natural understanding of wrongness, something had to establish that. And there is point two of the syllogism. There is an objective moral law. Now, this is up, to, up for debate in some parts of the world. But if you really push people on this, it's pretty obvious because our hearts, our hearts know what evil is. And if your hearts know what evil is, it ha- there has to be a reason that your heart knows what evil is. A lot of times we have a bowl of mints on the table by the front door. What if someone came in today and just picked up the bowl and did not allow anyone else to have them, which I did. I watched it being filled, and I grabbed it, and I stuck it in this podium, and I'm the only one enjoying mints right now. And you guys know that there's kind of an unspoken rule that there's a two-mint minimum or maximum. It's a one-to-two-mint maximum, right? You guys are not getting to experience the glory of the mints today. Because I preemptively stole what we all deep down know are intended to be community mints. <laughs> These are very chalky, and this is a, I knew this was going to happen, but I'm feeling it. Let me chew this before I take a very serious turn. To make this idea really clear. It's at least one mint too many. 
What if lives were being taken instead of men's? Everyone everywhere knows that murder is objectively wrong. Even people who do not think they believe in objective morality believe it is objectively wrong for you to take their life from them. Murder is inherently unjust. And we know that because there is an objective standard of morality and perfection in the universe by which we judge everything else. And that standard's name is Jesus. Perhaps the most famous phrase in the Bible about this is from 1 Peter. You shall, we already read it, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is holiness. God is perfection. God is the standard by which we can recognize imperfection, unholiness, unjustness, wrongness. Okay, so hold that and try to kind of hold the first two as well. A second similar argument is the aesthetic argument for the existence of God. These kind of go in the same category in this field. A version of that goes like this. The objective perception of beauty implies a perfect standard of beauty. Objective beauty and human perception of it does exist. Therefore, there is a holy standard of beauty. The objective standard of beauty. Now, you might say beauty is subjective. Sure, in some senses, you're right. You think your husband is prettier than her husband. She disagrees. And we don't have to fight about it because beauty is subjective. But it also isn't. If you pass a puddle of vomit and laying in the, sometimes crassness is clarity, (laughs) and laying in the puddle of vomit is a 20 carat diamond necklace. The diamonds are objectively more beautiful, more majestic than the throw up in all places at all times diamonds are breathtaking and vomit is stomach churning i've been to the grand canyon i couldn't believe it everybody tells you you're not going to believe it and then you still you can't believe it it's truly indescribable beauty and majesty I've also been at the back of my house where my dog constantly digs a hole at the bottom of the steps, right? Objective beauty and the human perception of it exists. The Grand Canyon is an almost existential experience, and the hole at the bottom of the steps is an annoyance. (coughs) Psalm 50. This is not just logic. This is the truth. Psalm 50 says, from Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the works of his hands. And here's what all this means for judgment. If God is the uncaused cause, the great designer, the moral standard, the true objective majesty and beauty that means that he is perfectly ultimately and uniquely capable of rightly judging 
everything that there is. If he's the uncaused causer of everything, that means everything that came from everything there is came from him. It belongs to everything belongs to him. It's his. You're his. This is his. It's all his. It has to be his. Who else is going to judge it? It's his. As the great designer, God is the only one who actually decided how all things work. You don't get to decide because it was decided before you got here. We don't get to make the rules because they were established in an almost infinity past. Therefore, he knows how all things should work. And he knows precisely how to judge against what he intended. God is also the true standard of morality and majesty. He has perfect understanding and complete authority to to declare how things do and do not measure up to his perfection. He is necessarily the only king, the only source of power, the only standard of good, and therefore the only judge. When God says he'll judge the living and the dead, he means it. Jesus is the uncaused cause. Jesus is the great designer. Jesus is the moral lawgiver. Jesus is the foundational beauty. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And that is really good news when you remember point number three. The basis of the judgment. The behaviors of the judge, the authority of the judge, and lastly, the basis of the judgment. Verse 1 again. Therefore, since Christ also suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. And verse 6, read that again. For this reason, the gospel, the good news, was also preached to those who are now dead so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Guys, this is... This is the story of the universe. Christ Jesus suffered in the flesh. He stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached so that we might live in the spirit according to God's standards. But what are God's standards? Absolute perfection. Remember, he is perfection. He's the only reason we have a concept for perfection. It is what he must require. But what are our capabilities? Absolute imperfection. There is an objective moral law, and we know we fall short. God is perfection. We are flesh. God is glory. We are sinners. God is judge, and we are guilty. We should receive judgment, but what should have been life-ending, soul-crushing judgment never came to us. You know why? This is staggering. Please don't forget this. Please don't let this seem small to you today. We should have received life-ending, soul-crushing judgment, but instead, the uncaused cause, the great designer, perfection itself, true majesty, put on flesh and dwelt among us, and he went to the cross in our place. The gospel that was preached is that Jesus faced our judgment in our place. 
God judged Jesus. God punished Jesus. And 1 Peter 4 is teaching us that the judge himself suffered in the flesh to finish sin for us. And 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, explains the outcome of this gospel when it says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, son or daughter of God, covered by the blood of Christ, you might become, you have become the righteousness of God. You have the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. Angel, you're, we're exiles and strangers, but Jesus has already suffered for our judgment. He's already defeated our sin. Jesus gave you his righteousness so that when God looks on you in judgment, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It is what he sees. It is all he will ever see. It's all he will ever see. No matter how many times your twirling leads to falling. No matter how many times you face painful judgment of this world. No matter how many times you see your own sin. The basement, the basis of the judgment is the work of Jesus. And if you are in him, all you ever get is perfect 10. Perfect 10 today, perfect 10 tomorrow, perfect 10 yesterday, perfect 10 50 years from now. A thousand years from now? When does it stop being a 10? That's right. You get a mint. So, I. Uh, close with this phrase that I think will be helpful for you. My family, we were all five of us in mine and Scarlett's bed a few weeks ago in the morning and Scarlett played the end of a Tim Keller sermon for us and Dr. Keller shared that he, has, that he had kept a piece of paper in his wallet for years that said the verdict is already in. And he talked about how we live our whole lives in the courtroom of other people's opinions And we do live our whole lives before the judge of the living and the dead. And if we focus on judgment in the wrong way, it is exhausting. Nothing ever measures up. But that doesn't need to be the case for a Christian. Keller said that most days when he could feel himself fighting for self-validation, he would pull out this piece of paper and read, the verdict is already in. In Jesus, the verdict is already in. You don't have to impress the people around you. You don't even have to impress the judge of the living and the dead because Jesus is more than impressive enough for the both of you. Jesus made the judge our dad. (laughs) That's crazy. I like my girls so much. And God is a way better dad than me. Our dad looks at us and he says, this is my son or my daughter. They are a perfect 10. So let's take that posture to the Lord right now together. As we sing, as we pray. If you need prayer for anything in your life right now, if, if, you, are, if you are struggling to trust the tenness of the way God sees you.
bring that to the Lord. One of our leaders would love to pray with you. If you do not have the position in Christ where you experience the tenderness, if you have never become a Christian and surrendered to the gospel and trusted in the work of God on your behalf, you can do that today. One of us would love to help you. But let me pray for us that we will live, that we will live from the fact that Jesus says we are righteous and live in such a way that glorifies God and leads to flourishing. Father, nobody compares to you. You are infinitely bigger and grander and greater than I can make you sound in the way that I try to explain it. It is more ludicrous than we can understand that you became the sacrifice for the standard that we could never meet. God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by the audacity of that, by the love in that. I pray that we would be continually melted and changed to live more like you because you say we get to be like you. Help us to worship you now as close as we can to how you deserve. In the name of Christ, amen.